0: Hello and welcome to Brain Stories. I'm Selena Ray, and I'm here with my co-host Steve Fleming.
1: On Brain Stories, we aim to provide a behind the scenes profile of the latest and greatest work in neuroscience, highlighting the stories and the scientists who are making this field tick.
0: We don't just ask about the science, we ask how the scientists got to where they are today and where they think their field is going in the future.
1: And today, we're very excited to be joined by Peter Koch, who is a Principal Research Fellow at um, University College London. He's based at the Phil, the Functional Imaging Laboratory in Queen's Square. He's a cognitive neuroscientist interested in how our prior knowledge of the world influences our perception. And Peter um, did his PhD with Floris de Lange at the Donders and then went to the States for a postdoc with... Nick Turk brown at uh, both Princeton and Yale. And then he came to UCL a few years ago to set up his own lab in Queen Square. And he's been pioneering the use of high field imaging, such as seven Tesla functional MRI to look at, deconstruct the circuits involved in um, perception. So we're really excited to have you on the podcast, Peter. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks very much for the invite.
1: So perhaps we could start by... um, Maybe you could say in your own words a bit about the focus of your research and what what you've been working on recently.
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah. So what I'm really interested in at at heart is how um, does the brain determine what we see, what we experience, uh, you know, our visual awareness of the world, and um, what we've been trying to do, as you say, is kind of to get at the neural circuit underlying that. So the the high field work helps there because usually with, with with neuroimaging human neuroimaging we've uh, uh, treated the brain as kind of a two-dimensional sheet but as we really know it's 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 much more than that it's a three-dimensional structure where the depth is really important as well the cortical layers and the high field imaging helps us dissect the circuit because we can now try to dissect signals signals that flow in different directions so signals that flow from the eyes up to the visual cortex up through the visual hierarchy to other regions versus uh, signals that flow the other way around. Signals coming from memory, for instance, reflecting prior knowledge that influence visual cortical processing. If you treat the brain as a 2D sheet, you cannot dissect those, but you can if you look at the cortical depth. Um, So that's one of the things that we're very excited about, trying to figure out how the brain combines these different signals coming from the eyes and coming from memory and prior knowledge Uh, How it combines those and then ends up with a percept of the world. Um, Another important uh, uh, arm in that research is looking at the temporal dynamics of how these signals are combined, using uh, methods like MEG to get a fine temporal resolution, and uh, looking at memory structures as well as visual cortex to see where these prior knowledge signals coming from. Roughly, those are kind of the three main kind of research lines in the lab. Fantastic
0: really exciting and on a on a kind of practical level I wonder if you could describe a bit for listeners what do these experiments look like presumably you are working with human participants in the scanner mm-hmm. and did they you're showing them a variety of, of images how do you test how somebody's prior knowledge influences their, their perception
2: yeah so indeed this is all human neuroimaging work that's my, my, my field my expertise that's what I do um, and uh, what, we used, what I used to do uh, a lot during my PhD and also my postdoc is show people images um, and those images are either expected or unexpected and then we look at how does the brain activity differ between those sets of images. Is there more activity for one than the other? Is one type of image better represented than another type of image based on expectations? Etc. But what we always kind of purposely ignored, um, how people perceive the images. So we always gave people a kind of distracting task to do that still involved the images, but wasn't really related to expectations or anything. So, um, and we did that to try to um, avoid any kind of confounds where people might um, use these expectations that they have, not to necessarily guide their perception, but to make strategic guesses. Um, So we make the images, for instance, difficult to see. So if if we give people an expectation about what the image is going to be, they could just, um, uh, to, to go extreme, close their eyes and just respond to what they thought they should be seeing. So to avoid that, we always had them do boring, distracting tasks, meaning that we couldn't really actually measure what they were seeing. And what we're doing now is trying to use the knowledge that we've gained from those tasks and try to actually study subjective perception by asking people in the scanner, what did you see? How sure are you about what you saw? And then try to relate their subjective reports to the neural activity. And that's something we've just started doing in the last few years and something I'm very excited about.
1: And your work um, has this clinical angle to it as well, because I, as I understand it, part of what you're interested in is why, people might suffer from subjectively very vivid hallucinations, for instance, in schizophrenia. And I'm just wondering whether you could um, say a few words about how you see that connection being built. Like what, what would you aspire to in terms of an explanation of something like a hallucination?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, my research has always been basic science testing, uh, like normative participants are usually students in the scanner. Um, and try to understand, uh, let's say, normal or healthy uh, brain. Uh, but this, the things we find here, the things we learn, do have implications for clinical disorders. Uh, like uh, hallucination is a clear point where perhaps if those, the combination of external and internal signals I mentioned earlier, memories and signals from the eye, if that balance is off, then you might expect... Um, perception to, to to be off as well. So if the internal signals are too strong, um, then perhaps what you see is driven by uh, um, internal signals like memories or prior knowledge, or, uh, rather than what actually is coming in through the eyes. And that might be a hallucination. And the flip side of that is if you don't use your prior knowledge to guide your perception, your perception might be overwhelming because you don't have a way of constraining the inputs. And that theory is about both those ends of the scales Uh, one uh, linking it potentially to hallucinations and the other maybe potentially linking it to sensory overstimulation in for instance autism spectrum disorder. Um, Those are things that I'm I'm very interested in that I don't work on directly myself but uh, through collaborations. So for instance uh, Ramona Weil was working on uh, hallucinations in Parkinson's disease and we have a collaboration using this high field scanning To try to see whether those uh, hallucinations might arise from internal uh, top-down signals or from uh, uh, um, aberrant bottom-up signals and there we can use the layers to try to dissociate that. So my core program is about basic science but I'm very eager to collaborate with colleagues uh, uh, investigating these clinical disorders as well
0: i think it's it's fascinating and i was going to mention the example of parkinson's disease actually will our or does our understanding of how these um hallucinations occur does that give us any insights into how people living with these conditions can better manage those hallucinations presumably sometimes they're quite disruptive to the individual.
2: yeah so um i think it might do again i I don't have much personal experience from working with these patients but from what i understand from colleagues who do for instance also a postdoc in my lab uh who does a lot of this work Joost Heismar, is, is has worked with psychosis patients before and is very interested in this i think the way that some people including Joost, i think look at it is that giving um uh, patients an understanding of that this is kind of a a uh, combination of, of in, uh, uh, memories and incoming signals is something that happens with everyone and the balance might just be a bit uh, you know, uh, different in some than others. Um, maybe take some of the stigma away from it being something uh, uh, um, completely alien that's occurring in their brain. So I think the way that he looks at it is that it, it makes it seem more like everyone's kind of on some point on the spectrum and um uh, you know but but the basic mechanism is there in everyone um and hopefully knowing that will take some of the uh will give some comfort i guess yeah.
0: would this be and this may be a really naive question um so forgive me if so but would when you say this mechanism is there in in everyone would this then also be the same pathways that play with I'm thinking of the famous dress that was doing the rounds a few years ago where some mm. people saw it as blue, some people saw it as gold. Is this the same yeah. kind of pathway that's that's kind of involved in in the the kind of perceptions that we're all susceptible to having differences between us? Yeah,
2: I think so. I think um, there are these kind of internal influences on what we see is something that happens in everyone. And it's so automatic and it happens all the time, so that we don't even really notice it. But if you think about the actual visual inputs that we get, where we take a snapshot by moving our eyes about every 200 milliseconds uh, and get completely different inputs, and um, if you then compare that to the visual experience we have, which is more of a smooth world and, uh, um, and things stay in the same place, even though our eyes move so much, There must be a lot of internal compensation for uh, to make sense of that chaotic overwhelming input so i think everyone has this uh, mechanism the question is just what's the right balance and uh, i think that's yeah i think i think that is that is right and i think in these um, uh, tests that we do we can try to dissociate got um, those two streams of information to some extent because we know that these signals from the eyes um, arrive in different cortical layers from these internal signals coming from memory for instance so um, there with that way we can try to study how these two signals um, affect visual processing and how the two are are integrated and potentially that can be used also to study how this may be different in in for instance patients with Parkinson's, uh, or psychosis, uh, or, or even autism.
1: So can I ask you a little more about the theory behind this? So I I remember studying psychology as an undergraduate and when we were taught vision, essentially it was this process of taking in information from the outside world, building some increasingly more abstract picture of what's out there, but it was very much a feed forward process. Things were coming in and being processed and what's, kind of remarkable with taking the long view of of neuroscience is that over the past 20 years or so, there's really been a somewhat like a revolution in the sense that we now understand the brain as much more as having these top-down signals and they shape perception and your work has shown really beautifully that those, those are being shaped at a fine grain level. Um, And so I'm wondering how much, we don't know about that still like what what kind of mechanistic model is out there and what 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 are the questions you're asking about like how those mechanisms might might work that we don't yet know the answer to yeah yeah i
2: think um i think there's a enormous amount we don't know i think the um, the role of of feedback internal signals top-down signals whatever you want to call them has it is recognized now as you say a lot more than 10 or 20 years ago but i remember the first studies i did during my phd and we, we tried to publish we'd often get pushback from at least one reviewer saying uh all, all feedback all top down is just attention there, there aren't expectations or predictions it doesn't mean anything it's just another term we don't need and that <laughs> we don't get that as much anymore. No, no. Well done. Um, so I think <laughs> <laughs> that's, that I, you, you can see that change. Um, it's almost sometimes uh, going a bit too far in the other direction where there is a particular theory of, of, of these top-down signals and how they influence perception known as predictive coding, where these top-down signals provide uh, prediction, which is then compared to the input, and then an error is computed about the, the mismatch between what you expected to see and what you did see. Um, That's a very specific theory, and now it's sometimes cited whenever um, um, there's any evidence of some kind of feedback signal or prediction, um, regardless of whether there is actually error computation going on. So I think that's the part we don't know. We don't know at all yet, I would say, how these top-down signals interact with these bottom-up signals, what the computations are, how they are integrated. Um, and one candidate is predictive coding it's is an attractive candidate but there also are also other theories and um, dissociating them i think is an important um, endeavor for the next uh, the next phase in this research and i think that is also a place where these kind of things like high field imaging and also um, high temporal resolution um, studies uh, can um, give a give us something extra because we can try to now look for these error computations to see if they're there or not.
0: And so I I wonder kind of following on from that, if you could context for us what is, you know, in the next five years, where do you think the most exciting developments will be in this area? And also I'm interested in, it seems like for all of us, even myself as a cell biology, a lot of the limitations around our understanding are how good the technology is to really enable us to kind of see in the detail. So should we be expecting even kind of better and more sophisticated imaging techniques to come online in the near future too?
2: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very good uh, question. I think it's exciting to see where the, where this will go next. One thing that I, uh, as I just mentioned that we really don't know enough about is the computations that by which the brain integrates these two sources of information. So most studies, also studies that we've done, we try to isolate, for instance, one of those sources. So we we, we try to isolate in one condition a signal that's purely driven by the eyes. So present an image that's that's not uh, not expected, and then in another condition try to look at a pure expectation signal where people expect to see something but it's not shown. Um, but, and that's given us some very valuable insights, but it doesn't tell us anything about how those two sources are combined, which is what normal perception is like. And the challenge there, of course, is that now you have these two signals mixing uh, in the different cortical layers over time, if you're looking at MEG. And I think that's where the real challenge will lie for the next uh, phase of this research. How can we link subjective perception to the integration of these uh, sources of information and do we see errors uh, or is it, is, is it more an integration of some of these signals rather than an error computation? And that's a, a big challenge uh, because now you're looking at signals that are flowing through a circuit uh, at the same time and combining. Um, but I think with the techniques that we have, we can now, and the knowledge that we've gained from isolating the two signals in, in the previous research, we can try to make some headway there. Um, Another important thing there I think will be to uh, collaborate with people who test these circuits in animal models uh, where we have a lot more even fine-grained spatial and temporal resolution than we do in in human neuroimaging. And I I find that um, also people doing animal research are now getting more interested in these ideas of of prediction and expectation where they they weren't maybe 10 years ago. So I think that's another uh, uh, promising development.
1: So, just in terms of the alternative models you're testing here, so you mentioned that um, I think in earlier on you said something about how there might not actually be error computations in the way that, say, a predictive coding model would would um, lay it out. So I'm just wondering what if there was kind of a dream experiment you could do to pull apart different possible mechanisms by how memory and input are combined like what would that yeah. experiment look like if you had kind of unlimited access to the to the circuit
2: yeah i think that's a good question i think you would want to um, measure um ideally a bunch of individual neurons in different cortical layers um and then measure the activity in those neurons after you've Presented a cue that, that that elicits an expectation about what's going to happen and then measure uh, in that period when there's just an expectation and then you present something that either matches the expectation or it doesn't and then you, know, you continue measuring and see how the, the representation of that stimulus is affected by the expectation. If, there, uh, if predictive coding is true then there should be separate neurons that encode the prediction or hypothesis about what's likely to be out there in the world, um, probably in the deep cortical layers and, uh, and neurons that re- encode purely the mismatch between the two. Um, so you would get qual- qual- qualitatively very different responses. If on the other hand, theories are true that, for instance, that say that what uh, feedback is doing is not um, um, inhibit expected information, but enhance it, Um, and then you should see the opposite profile in in, in those uh, neurons. So you shouldn't see any neurons that encode mismatch explicitly. So I think this is something that people are starting to do now in some rodent models, for instance. Um, There's still a lot to be worked out because it's it's a new uh, kind of development in animal research, especially. But we can also try to do this now with these high field experiments by trying to do this kind of experiment I just described and, and look at the different cortical layers where we would expect that the feedback would be in the deep cortical layers and feed forward the error being signaled up the hierarchy in the superficial cortical layers. And we're doing some of these experiments uh, now to try to see if we can see any signature of such an error. Signal.
1: Mm-hmm. Cool. And, and do you, so just in relation to animal models, do you think mice hallucinate in the same way that... I mean, in the sense that you can create these experiments and look at the interaction, but I'm just wondering like, because your work is yeah. in humans is nicely connected to these the subjective aspects of experience. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering, do you think that, or is there any evidence that you have individual differences in, say, other animals that they just have this these vivid hallucinations in the same way that humans might?
2: Yeah, um, it's a very good question. I think that. Um... Some uh, people, especially Katharina Schmack is one researcher who is really arguing for this and has shown very convincing data that at least there are some high confidence false alarms, which you could call hallucinations, as she does. But we don't know, of course, you know, we can't we can introspect about our own uh, percepts, but not about a uh, Um But at least she's making a very convincing empirical case that there are these high confidence false percepts. Um, the question then is: Is the circuit ultimately ultimately going to be the same as in humans? And of course, I think on some level, um, yes, but on, on, in other aspects, probably not. Um, the visual cortex of, of rodents is organized quite differently than than that of, of humans. Of course, it's it, you know um, the 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 in the human visual cortex there's this organization of uh, features like orientation in a way that uh, in in maps that isn't uh, present in in rodents as far as uh, I'm aware. So I think there will be important differences as well, which is why it's great that now we're starting to get to a stage where we can bridge some of the gap. It used to be uh, um, very coarse measurements in humans and very fine grained in in animals with a huge gap between them and also um, a lack at some point, sometimes of common interest, like I said, expectation and predictions weren't of interest in, in animal research maybe 10, 20 years ago. But now we're starting to close the gap a little bit in terms of the resolution of the signals we're looking at. And we're starting to have these common interests. So I think now we're, we, we can start to see what is the same or what is different in these different uh, organisms.
0: It's fascinating. And it gives us a chance to plug our previous episode yeah. with Katarina Schmack. Absolutely. If any of our listeners didn't have a chance, you can go back and listen to episode 11 yeah. to find out more. Definitely recommend that
2: one.
0: <laughs> so actually, Peter, I wondered if I could ask you a little bit about how you became interested in this area, and what your training path was through your career? What did you do as an undergraduate? And how did mm-hmm. you end up where you are now?
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, uh, initially it was a, bit, a little bit stop and start because after secondary school I had no idea what I wanted to to do, and uh, a, a lot of my friends were going going into computer science, and I I didn't know what to do, so I thought I'll do that as well. Um, but it turned out initially to be quite enjoyable, some of the maths and logic and those kinds of courses. But at the more computer science he, it got, the more I started. Hating it, and after a year and a half, I I I quit that, which gave me a half year to wait till the next year to start start to figure out what what do I want to do, and that took me a while to decide, and I ended up choosing psychology, uh, doing a psychology uh, bachelor degree, which was originally something I was interested in as well. I remember my school like counselor advisor, um, I don't know what the right word is at the end of secondary school. Uh, when I brought up psychology saying that would be a waste of your uh, degree uh, of your, your your high your high grades in in uh, wow. physics and chemistry and stuff and uh, don't do that psychology is too soft a topic so uh, uh, it, it eventually I ended up there anyway uh, and I'm very glad I did because then I started really enjoying university I found it very interesting I really loved uh, the biology as well the, the courses of the the, the different receptors and the and the cells involved and uh, I started really enjoying it especially as the degree went on. Um, in the, I'm wondering in the,
1: the, the, at that stage did you the computer science start is interesting right given now all the um, yeah. convergence I guess between your work now and computer vision artificial neural networks and so on I, I'm wondering whether at that stage did you notice some of the commonalities there that did you did you think yeah no this is good but i want to look at it from another perspective or was it just a complete shift
2: for me it was really a complete shift so with hindsight i think oh i wish i remember more from (laughs) 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 i got some i learned some programming which was useful and now of course but i feel like a lot of the stuff if i remember the maths that i was taught there better it would have been great (laughs) but i i for me it was such a complete break personally i really there was so much i didn't like about that degree mm. and it uh that it felt, felt like a complete break to me and then in the psychology the things i found most interesting were the more biological courses so like i mentioned the receptors and the, the cells etc so very different level uh, also very different from where i ended up um uh, ultimately so it felt like a complete break and with hindsight i wish i, I remember a bit more from my computer science days but because yeah that is definitely a, a useful um uh, skill set to have as well um but yeah and i in the the, the third year of my bachelor in psychology i uh i didn't um get enough of the, the 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 credits to to graduate i needed a few more because of them uh, you know i didn't have the best year uh, uh personally and then i needed just for a few credits or uh, do a whole other year so then i figured i'll use that year to do some philosophy so i did a year of philosophy courses as well which i really enjoyed um there were some general philosophy courses but also a few specifically like philosophy of mind type courses and that really kind of latched on to my i guess the question i I already had um, how does this clump of cells in our skull lead to consciousness how is it possible that we Kind of an experience of like the color blue or something something so subjective from a clump of cells. It's it's unfathomable, kind of you know. Of course, is talking about you know the, the hard problem versus the easy problems, etc. So I found all of that uh, very interesting. And then I had to decide at the end of that which way do I want to go? Do I want to go this what is philosophy route? Do I want to do pursue that or uh, a science, uh, or do I want to do a, like a research master, I knew I wanted to go for either one quite like seriously, I'm either going to go for, for like a, there was a two-year research master program that I was considering or this two-year philosophy master. And in the end, I chose the, the science, obviously, uh, given where I end up now. Um, because I felt like that would be a way where I might be able to contribute some new knowledge, whereas I didn't have as much confidence that I'd be able to do that down the philosophy route. Um, and that I'm from then on, things are getting more linear or smooth, I guess I would say, in my, because then it, it, I really enjoyed that master. I got to do two uh, neuroscience projects uh, during that master where I got a lot of free reign as well, which was. Maybe not the best for the projects themselves, but it really allowed me to <laughs> learn learn a lot and and get a lot of experience with, with EEG the first year, TMS the second year, and that was a lot of a lot of fun and I learned uh, I learned a lot. Um, so from then on, I really was hooked in the like the cognitive neuroscience uh, program.
1: And so the philosophy link, I I hadn't realized this, having despite sharing a. Uh, <laughs> yeah. build, building with you for a few years i hadn't realized your your choice point um with philosophy before yeah so I, i'm intrigued now um whether you still feel like there's a hard problem are you still do you still feel the pull of that problem now i do with all yeah. you know about the way the visual system works and so on
2: yeah i do yeah so the it's again something where i uh, i wish i would have kept track of the philosophy more but i kind of made this this choice for science and then i went went for that and i still think about these uh, topics but the way i thought about it at the time and i still kind of do is that the hard problem i have no idea how to solve that and it feels intuitively to me like there is a hard problem um but the easy problems maybe that's a way of starting to Raise the gap a little bit. So that's what I, the way I started thinking about it. Maybe through science, doing experiments, we can solve some of the easy problems, like what kind of computations does the brain do to, you know, as we just as we discussed earlier, combine sensory signals and memory, etc. And maybe if we understand that, maybe the high problem will shrink. So that was kind of my way of of thinking about it. Um, and I, I think. Um, I still, like I said, I still feel like there's some, there's a gap to bridge uh, there, and I'm not sure how to how to bridge that gap. But of course, that's you know that's a topic that everyone wonders about, I guess.
0: It seems from, from what you've just said, it, that the, the real sort of key to putting you on this path was those first experiences of actually doing practical research. Mm, and that's yeah. kind of what solidified the decision for you. And I, I just yeah, wonder yeah. if you could maybe tell us a little bit more about your kind of, fir- you've mentioned briefly, but your, your first yeah. research experiences and how that then sort of guided you onto this path of being interested in visual perception.
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think so. Visual consciousness was always the, the thing I wanted about most. How's you know how is it possible? And uh, what I decided to do for my first uh, research project in my in my my masters was I just wrote to basically my favorite professor in the department from the courses that I had, uh, Ritzke de Jong, at experimental psychology, and um, uh, I just asked him if he would be willing to supervise a project for me, and I I, I got really interested. Through both psychology and philosophy in um, binocular rivalry, so what I asked if he would be willing to supervise a project where we're doing binocular rivalry uh, uh, um, and also actually two other uh, kind of paradigms while recording EEG, Um, and that's and basically he he said yes, which was great. So I basically got to do what I wanted to do, which as I said probably wasn't the best for the project itself and we didn't really i I didn't really have a super clear like hypothesis you know this theory versus that theory i just um was so curious how these kind of subjective fluctuations in consciousness relate to brain signals so i did some uh, binocular rivalry with frequency tagging so let the so you present one stimulus to each eye and then what you see is that you're you're either aware of one stimulus that's presented to the left eye, say, or the one that's presented to the right eye, but never both at the same time. It fluctuates. And by letting the two images flicker at different frequencies, you can try to track in the brain signals using EEG. If you if there's more activity for the flicker rate of the stimulus you're aware of than the stimulus you're not aware of. So that's that's um, one of the things I did during that first project. And I found it so interesting that you could actually track this. Um, That uh, that really yeah got me and it was also so I got so much uh, free reign from the professor. There was a PhD student who helped me a lot with daily supervision, who helped me program the experiment um, and helped me record the EEG. And he was a very also very relaxed and super helpful uh, guy. Um, And and that really just yeah gave me such an appetite to do more of this research because it was so enjoyable, even if the project itself wasn't you know world shattering. Um, it was, it was, yeah, really fun.
1: And I'm intrigued then, like, how you think about supervising your own students now in light of, like, what's best for the project, what's best for the person. I feel like yeah. a lot of, uh, it's often hard as a PI to know how to strike that balance. Yeah, and I'm just wondering what your, your thoughts are on that in light of yeah. that experience.
2: That's a good. It's something I'm very much still trying to figure out. I guess I haven't been a PI for that long, uh, right? So um, it's it's something I do think about. So my second year was very different. Is what much more uh, a hypothesis and a project that was kind of there to do um, as a follow up on an existing project, etc. This was the uh, TMS study, um, which also shaped me in a lot of ways because this was kind of already about expectations. So people. We're looking at uh, arrows on the screen, and uh, sometimes there'd be one arrow, and sometimes two in succession. And they, those would sometimes be paired with TMS pulses. And then there would be trials where there would, for instance, be two TMS pulses, but only one arrow. And then people would sometimes actually see two arrows um, induced by the TMS pulses to their visual cortex. So they kind of hallucinated the the, um, the expected stimulus induced by the TMS pulse. So that was um, I found that again, super interesting, but that was, and then the the project I did was just a variant of that with different kind of visual stimuli, more than just left and right tilted arrow, um, uh, sets of two, four, six or eight images and see if the hallucination becomes less if you have less of an expectation, because for instance, there's eight possibilities instead of two. Um, And that's, uh, so that was a very clear cut experiment where there was much more top-down direction about what the project is going to be um and therefore also the results were much more informative um you know you know so i think there's definitely a a balance to be struck there um and i guess it you know definitely depends on career stage as well so what i've been doing so far i guess and what was also my own phd experience is that often the for a phd the first project is fairly top down the idea the ideas is is based on the idea of the supervisors and that as you complete that first cycle of a full study uh, analyzing data thinking about how to write it up how to frame it then you're much more better equipped as a student to um, have a lot more input in what the next study is going to be so for now that's kind of the way I think about it like there's a, uh, a change from more top-down to more bottom-up over the course of a, of a, of a PhD and um, I th-
0: a lot of our listeners are undergraduates or people who might just be thinking about setting out on their research career. And I think we've heard a lot of valuable themes from you about, you know, maybe not initially knowing what you want to do, the importance of securing that first kind of research experience. Would you have any advice Mm -hmm. to anyone who is listening and thinks they might want to pursue research but doesn't really know how to make that decision or where to start?
2: Yeah, um, I mean, I think, The one thing that i've always been guided by is to try to do something i'm genuinely curious about and excited about so if you're trying to decide do i want to do a project and what kind of project there's different factors to weigh Uh, for instance how um how uh, uh, well known is the the pi how you know how big a profile do they have etc but those kind of things i have tried to not really take into account myself. I've always I've just been guided by what am I excited about? What is the um, uh, uh, the, the research that they're doing? And is it creative? Is it, am I curious about what they'll find? And I really remember this from uh, after my PhD, visiting Nick Turk Brown's lab to 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 explore ideas about maybe doing a postdoc together. Um, I had meetings with people in his lab and they all had such creative and fun research ideas that really got me excited. There was a Julie Fan doing drawing on a tablet, having people draw images on a tablet and then analyzing those images using deep neural nets uh, to try to see how drawing influences visual representations. There was someone, who was doing what he called a Harry Potter stimuli, uh, study where he you start with one image and then there's a kind of magic word and it changes into a different image and see how that works in the brain. I thought this is all so creative and fun and I'm so curious about the results. That's what I want to do, you know? So in general, I guess that would be my main advice. Be excited about what, what you're doing because that's the thing that will probably make the difference between whether you End up doing it and keep doing it or not. It, you know, you're always going to have some setbacks, uh, but uh, if you're really driven to uh, to find the answers to your questions, then you're more likely to overcome those setbacks. I think.
1: And it's interesting you mentioned creativity because I feel like that's often a something that's overlooked in science as a as a, an important factor and also one that keeps things interesting, right? So, like we, mm-hmm. one of the amazing things about doing sites is that you do have the freedom to wake up one day and say let's try something completely different or let's yeah. let's think about a new way of doing things um so yeah pointing that out as a driving factor in into going into research i think is very helpful yeah exactly and i
2: think there also everyone has to kind of find their balance between being on solid ground and yep. doing something really new um so i have found that we're doing this, starting this high field imaging. Initially, we've been fairly conservative using paradigms we've used before because we're using we're doing a really new measurement, right? right? So now I'm feeling like we're getting to the point where we've done multiple of these kinds of studies. We're starting to have more confidence in these signals, these measurements. Now we can hopefully you know, try to be more creative and and, and test some more uh, uh, creative ideas using these methods.
0: So thank you so much for joining us. We're almost out of time. So we need to start wrapping up the, the episode now, but before we do that, we always finish by asking everyone the same question. So this is a neuroscience podcast. Could you tell us what is your favorite fact about the brain?
2: Yeah, um, so I mean, so many things that are fascinating about the brain, but one thing that came to mind to me, particularly thinking about this question is the bold response. Um, so, in F- all these fMRI studies we do, functional magnetic resonance imaging, relies on the fact that when there's um, a lot of neural activity in a part of the brain, then um, more oxygenated blood is provided to that part of the brain. And that's basically creates the, 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 the neural um, phenomenon that we measure using fMRI. But why does the brain send a lot more oxygenated blood than needed? Um, so one professor at the Donner's, um Institute where I worked before, David Norris, used to uh, call this in his, his lectures, if I recall correctly, used to call this God's gift to neuroscientists, because if the brain would just provide just enough oxygenated blood, yeah. we wouldn't measure anything. There would be I no signal, and uh, and also it's so precise. So we, it's not just uh, this lobe of the brain gets more oxygenated blood. It's at the level where we can use this signal to differentiate different images from each other, different uh, 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 neural computations. It's a very fine-grained kind of blood supply, and it's but still it's overdone in a way. So the, the fact that the bold response exists is such a uh, lucky marvel for us uh, human neuroimages.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it's such a great point. And it's also, I guess, we often forget, and also speaking as someone who uses these techniques all the time, we often forget that The ability to say, like in in your work, Peter, decode using machine learning techniques, the orientation of a line on the screen that you're showing someone. I mean, we think of that as kind of like applying machine learning to a pattern of a pattern in the brain image. But really what you're doing is applying machine learning to these incredibly fine grained oxygen level dependent signals.
2: Yeah, exactly. I think um, this is just uh, something that with every new study that we start, where we get some uh, pilot data and start analyzing, and then just looking at these images and 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 um, decoding, like you say, the orientation of a line. You, you know, I think usually every new study we start, I think at some point at least, it's remarkable that we that we can even do this, that we get such a reliable. Um, You know, blood signal basically reflecting the neural activity at such a fine uh, uh, spatial scale. Yeah.
1: There we go. God's gift to neuroscientists. Love it. (laughs) Um, All right. Well, that was such a great discussion, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Brain Stories. We'd like to thank Matt Wakelin, Maya Sapir, and Trevor Smart for their roles in taking brain stories from an idea to a fully fledged podcast. We'd like to thank Patrick Robinson and UCL Digital Education for editing and mixing. Please follow us on Twitter at UCL Brain Stories for updates and information about forthcoming episodes and see you all next time.